Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Looking at WTI crude oil, uh, up just slightly here, $110 a barrel, certainly off the highs of north of 120 but boy, it's still $110 uh, a barrel that's pretty significant and you know people tell me the reason that gas is still so high is there's just no refining capacity out there which i just don't get i mean i think if i go down to the gulf coast i can find some refineries but they're telling me that's not the case but let's talk energy here is that trade over liz young head of investment strategy at sofi joins us here and liz you know we're still paying near five dollars a gallon at the pump wti crude still north of a hundred dollars a barrel is this energy trade for investors, is that played out? We're off the highs, but boy, it's still stubbornly high here. How do you think about that? Yeah, look, I mean, we're we're off the highs, but given the elevated prices of oil, and, and I do think that oil stays elevated, which helps energy company profit margins and helps their ability to increase dividends and engage in stock buybacks, that can all be supportive of the stock price. What I'm warning people about right now is that I think we've made a lot of money in this energy trade, and energy is the only sector that's still positive year-to-date, three months, and six months behind us. And if you're looking at that as the, the last sector, sort of the last man standing in positive territory, the chances of it seeing downside are just higher. And you want to be able to position yourself for some price appreciation in sectors that have really been beaten up. So it's okay to take profits in some of these energy names and redeploy that capital into sectors like financials or even some of the really beaten up consumer discretionary names or small cap names that have seen a lot of pain to valuations over the last few months. By the way, Liz, how do you um, talk to investors, especially younger investors, about making these moves? Um, is it about individual names? Is it about indexes? Do you like ETFs? I mean, is there uh, one strategy that you think works best for this new generation of investors? I do think that we have to be more specific this year than just broad indexes. I think that there's been a lot of pain that's felt on a broad index level, and you want to be specific about sectors or industry groups that you see as themes that could work going forward, let's say, the next two to five years. But individual names are good in that, too. And, and unfortunately, I can't speak about individual names in particular, but it's okay to choose individual names that you think are well-established or top of their game, best in class in their sector or industry group, because I think that fundamentals in an environment like this are going to reign supreme. And you want to have sectors, industry groups, and companies that can survive not only pricing pressure, but can finance their own growth and can survive through a cycle that's going to be really painful and really challenging for a lot of companies I'm, as their profit margins get hit. I'm just thinking of, uh, you know, when I think of SoFi, I think of uh, 
younger, maybe family starting up that has a few thousand dollars a month to put away. I don't know what you would call a yuppie mm-hmm. today, but you know, people my <laughs> age remember what yuppies are. Jen something. I don't know. Yeah, something. Gen-C, Gen-Y, I don't know. I don't but, know. you know, it, does it make sense to try and pick individual names? You're going to hold these those people probably until retirement. Or um, we keep seeing these themed ETFs pop up, and I don't know if they're just a fad or if they're a good way to get into, uh, you know, a certain idea or a certain segment. Yeah, I mean, some of the themed ETFs or, or other types of ETFs that I would consider more like active beta exposure are a good way to have a specific exposure to a certain theme or a certain idea that you have without taking on you know, the entire industry or taking on the entire sector. And I think that those are good ideas, keeping in mind that they're probably going to carry a little higher fee than just a broad-based index ETF. But there's still a lower fee than a lot of mutual funds out there. So you're looking at kind of that middle ground where you can be more specific about the investment. Now, to your question about younger investors or maybe people that have smaller balances in accounts and don't want to spend all of that balance on one or two names, ETFs are a much easier way to get a diversified basket of of securities. Also, platforms like SoFi, we do offer fractional shares. So you can look for opportunities like that where you don't have to buy an entire share of something, especially in those names that cost thousands of dollars per share. You can buy fractional units and still diversify your portfolio by using individual names. So Liz, on on the SoFi platform, what are you guys seeing in terms of fund flows? Where are the funds uh, going these days because there's so many different narratives out there. The fund, the Fed will be successful. The Fed won't be successful. Pushes into a recession. Lots of different theories out there. Yeah, I mean, not surprisingly, we've seen outflows in risk assets. Um, and when I talk about risk assets, I'm thinking some technology, even crypto. You've seen investors just really dial back their risk appetite this year. But I think a lot of people have still held strong, and our user base does skew younger. People believe in technology and they believe in communications as still the way of the future. And there's a decent amount of activity in all of those sectors. So I think as long-term investors, we have to remember that. The other thing is when you look at defensive sectors or dividend-paying sectors, those are not usually sectors that are really popular with a younger crowd. But that's something that I would remind younger investors are still important to balance out the portfolio with and to make sure that you're not overly exposed to some of these areas that are going to have a lot more pain because of rate hikes. Yeah. Well, it seems like the destruction that we've seen already in terms of wealth has eclipsed what we saw during the great financial crisis, even though I don't feel the same anxiety, not even close to what we felt then. And and the reason is, um, as far as I can tell, Back then, what you lost in equities, those losses were buffered by your bond holdings. And today, they're both going down. Um, can you hide in those defensive names? Is there someplace else you want to put your money? Are you seeing clients just hold cash? Yeah, I mean, look, there's there's been, unfortunately, really nowhere to hide recently. And I think a lot of the defensive sectors have been bid up to a point that they're pretty expensive right now. It is not a mistake to hold some extra cash while you're waiting out the volatility or while you're just systematically putting money into the market, right? You can put it in in little drips. You can do dollar cost averaging. It's okay to have a higher than usual percentage of cash right now while we get through some of this really tough part. I'd also say bonds have definitely corrected quite a bit over the course of this year. 
But if recession fears continue to rise and if growth continues to slow, I think there's a good possibility that we see a rally in something like the 10-year Treasury and we see some of those yields come back in a little bit. So I think in the second half of the year, there's a possibility that bonds do actually protect uh, in times of stock market pullbacks. Hey, Liz, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, we always appreciate getting your perspectives there. Uh, Liz Young, Head of Investment Strategy at SoFi. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Josh Aviv, CEO of Spark Charge, uh, joins us here. Josh, I drove my first electric vehicle a couple of weeks ago, Ford F-150 Lightning, and it was awesome. Now, fortunately, I have a charging station near my house, which fires it up really quickly. But At the country me. club. At the country <laughs> club. It worked out great. I didn't know it was a thing until I, I actually had this truck. Talk to us about the, the state of the charging system uh, in the United States today and how you think it's going to evolve as more and more auto manufacturers are, are really getting into the EV uh, business. Absolutely. And, and once again, thank you for having me having me on. Super excited to talk about the EV industry. When we think about the electric vehicle industry today, right, you know, we're starting to see more and more electric vehicles hitting the road. We're starting to see, you know, a ton of new makes and models from different automakers constantly getting announced, right? And I think that's an amazing, you know, progressive statement for where the EV industry is going and where it's been. But there's still a lot of issues around EV charging, right? So typically, when we think about EV charging, we often assume, you know, hey, a pole in the ground goes in here, someone shows up, and they, they you know, they plug in their car. But that's really not the case in a lot of cities, right? There's a lot of gaps in charging. There's a lot of infrastructure problems that come with charging. Um, and at Spark Charge, you know, we announced currently our mobile on-demand charging app where an EV owner could get range delivered with the push of a button. And we started to see the closing of a lot of those gaps where EV owners no longer have to worry about finding, sitting, and waiting at an EV charger. That is unbelievable. I never even heard about this. Now, I know you were on the Shark Tank um, recently and got a million-dollar investment from Mark Cuban and Lori Greiner. But so the idea is if I'm parked right here outside 731 Lexington Avenue in New York City, and I'm, uh, what, a member of your service, I can have you just come over here and charge my car while I'm at work? Absolutely. It's as easy. You know, we, we like to joke around, but our goal was to make EV charging as simple as ordering a pizza, right? So the same way that <laughs> you can get groceries and food delivered to you just where you're located, you can now have charging delivered to your car. Uh, so you can be at work, you can be at home, you can be out on the go, you can be eating at a restaurant, and if you want to have your car charged right there on the spot, um, it can be brought to you and charged your car, and your car can be charged. That that is awesome. So, what's the what's the pricing look like? I, I'll just for comparison say that we have my garage across the street here on 58th Street. They charge me twenty dollars if I want to plug in the car. Really? Yeah. That's a scam. Wow, that's that's a lot, <laughs> but. 
Um, yeah, I mean, our pricing in, in some cases is, is a lot cheaper than going to a fixed infrastructure uh, charging station. So, you know, our pricing, I think, with like our, you know, Explore plan is only about 50 cents a kilowatt hour. Um, so during peak times, you're actually saving money uh, using our service. You know, I see uh, one of your investors is Kyrie Irving, and sports fans, net fans, know that he opted into his contract yesterday, so he'll be set for another $36.5 million. So if you need some extra working capital, I suggest you maybe you call Mr. Irving here. Talk to us about the, kind of the growth now you're expecting here, uh, Josh, because, again, if, if Luddites like me start getting into the EV market, this thing's just going to explode, and I, I would think your business would be in a pretty good position there. Absolutely. So when you think about the growth, I mean, it's really been unprecedented. EV owners want the convenience of having the charge delivered to them, not having to go, you know, find, sit and wait for it. Um, when we first started out, I think, you know, our goal to our investors was, hey, can we deliver, you know, 10,000 miles here within the first couple of months? And we immediately blew right past that goal, right? We delivered over 100,000 miles of EV owners within the first couple of months. And this year alone, we're on track to deliver over a million miles to EV owners. And when you think about, you know, that, that stat in itself is something truly amazing, right? Miles of range delivered, right? And that's something that we, we take a lot of pride in. It's our guiding light. And when you think about the scale of, you know, where we started, when we first started, we were just, you know, L.A., San Francisco, Dallas, Texas. We've now expanded in San Jose, Oakland, Berkeley, Fremont. Um, we've now expanded into Long Beach, Anaheim, Orange County, and we're going to be opening up here San Diego and Boston in the next couple of months. But when we think about the scale of the service, we're planning to jo scale into over 20 cities here over the next couple of months, which is truly amazing. Josh, I want to just ask about the possibility of an exit. Um, Mark Cuban, he's not going to throw in a million dollars until he knows, you know, what's the idea about how you make money on the other end. What are you thinking about in terms of um, the possibility of an IPO, of a sale? Are you just looking to generate a ton of free cash flow? How's it look? Yeah, so I mean, when you think about it, the really cool part about this, right, is the fact that, you know, we are actually growing faster than traditional uh, pull-based infrastructure. So we can be up and running in a city in under 14 days where traditional pull-based infrastructure takes anywhere from six months to two years, right? And we can blanket an entire city and then be generating revenue, right, in under 14 days wow. in the city. So when we think about, you know, the chances of, you know, us going public, IPOing, I think we're outperforming at an early stage. A lot right. of these companies that have gone public via SPACs, have gone public yep. via traditional routes, we're actually outperforming them from a revenue standpoint right. um, because we're able to be everywhere and grow faster. All right, Josh. If you look at the market, it took a lot of these infrastructure companies, yep. you know, five, six years. All right, Josh, we're going to have to leave it there because we're going to go. We have a hard start for our next interview. Josh Aviv, CEO and founder of Spark Charge. We welcome our television viewers and our radio listeners. Joining us now live from the NASDAQ is Thomas Ingelath, Polestar's CEO. We're joined also by my good friend and colleague, Bloomberg's Matt Miller. Thomas, you have taken the company public. You are now a public organization, uh, a public company. You did that by a SPAC at the back end of last week, Friday. It's an interesting time to be making such a transaction. Generally, EV SPAC combinations, Thomas, have not gone well over the last couple of years. Why is Polestar and its deal going to be different? 
Well, we finished successfully our listing together with our partner, Gors Guggenheim. And I think us being a real company, delivering already for two years to satisfied, happy customers and having a real business going on with a product portfolio ready developed, ruling out now, I think that made the difference. Talk to us about your portfolio. I've driven the Polestar 1, which was an extraordinarily exciting vehicle, but also um, very expensive and very limited. You've got the two and you've just introduced the three. What are you expecting in terms of a, a fleet? Yeah, well, this is now the new chapter opening with three cars that are rolling out in the next three years. The first will be the SUV Polestar 3, as well produced here in the US. We have a second SUV coming in the year 23, and then the beautiful precept concept car becoming reality in form of the Polestar 5, a GT four-door that we have actually just driven up the hill in, in Goodwood and showed the, uh, the, the real mm -hmm. far advanced stage of the prototype there in the public in, in Goodwood in the UK. Guy, Guy, have you been to Goodwood? Uh, he's talking about the Festival of Speed, which has just finished over the weekend. I saw, like I live fairly close to Goodwood, so I saw plenty of cars going up the hill um, away from me towards Goodwood. No, it's, it's an interesting little hill climb, Matt. Yeah. But it's a lovely weekend. Yeah, it, and the it, weather this weekend was pretty nice. It, it, it is um, hugely important in the car world. But what's even more important than that in the car world right now, uh, Thomas, is chips and supply chain. Um, you talked about the fact that you're producing in the U.S. as well as, I assume, in Goldenberg, in Sweden. Um, what does your supply chain look like? What's the strength? What's the solidity of that? Yeah. So you're not talking about fish and chips, but the other chips. Yes. Yeah, no. Um, yeah, of course, big topic, and it has been in 21 already. We had made that journey um, with very, very short uh, visibility on our production uh, planning. But, of course, we have trained by now, 21 and 22. We successfully have managed to uh, get our cars out of the factories. And now, of course, always uh, the question about COVID-19 lockdowns. Of course, this will be still, even in the year 23, one of the topics that will be around. In terms of where the business goes, you've got one, two, three, as you say, you're going to be expanding the fleet even further than that. Who, who is your target here? It was interesting, we were, we were hearing from Elon Musk a few days ago in Doha, and he talked about the supply chain being the opposition rather than other car companies. Do you see it the same way? And if you don't, who are you going to take market share away from? Who's the target here? I think that might be a slight different game. Elon and the millions of cars that he has on, uh, on his agenda, we are obviously positioned in a very different segment. We are aiming for the luxury premium segment and clearly want to um, target that market, high um, profit margins and the volume for that reason um, being rather um, clearly defined by this target group. So 290,000 cars we are aiming for in the year 2025. And of course, um, that, that is a, a dimension where we have already secured the production in, in the factories and where the purchasing for all our parts has happened already. Do you... Um 
Do you have any influence on the charging infrastructure? Because that's one of the biggest problems for me when it comes to electric cars. There just aren't enough chargers. Uh, around the corner from my house, there are like six gas stations. None of them offer electric charging, and I have no idea where I would go if I needed some. Well, it's um, indeed a very, very important factor in it. We have a very strong momentum in electrification, double this year um, from last year. And indeed, the charging infrastructure has to develop along the line because otherwise it would be a big threat to that movement. Now, one thing is the charger that you find right next to you. The other far, uh, question is, uh, where do you charge when you're on your trip? Electrify America, um, our important partner here, is obviously developing and investing lots of money into developing this infrastructure. Same uh, goes, goes for Europe. There is a big momentum, but indeed, is it enough for the big movement that we have towards EV? Th Still. Thomas, just want to ask about dealerships. Yeah. Am I going to only be able to get your cars through Volvo dealerships, your former parent company? Are you going to be working with Geely to put up your own dealerships? How's that going to work? We work together with um, Volvo dealers to actually build up and set up new Polestar, uh, what we call spaces, where you physically go for the test drive and beat the brand. This we have already done here in the US uh, in, in big times last year. It will continue this year. We have um, a very branded experience for our customers um, far away from the Volvo um, dealership. Thomas, I'll see you at the Festival of Speed next year. <laughs> a quiet run up the hill at the Festival of Speed, as opposed to the noisy ones uh, that we've had in history. Uh, Thomas, thank you very much indeed. Thomas Inglelath, Polestar CEO, and of course, my good friend and colleague, Matt Thanks Miller. Thanks a lot. This see you there. is Bloomberg. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. There's been a lot of finger pointing ever since this inflation started to take off, right? We've heard President Biden numerous times putting all the blame on Vladimir Putin. Uh, of course, if uh, you watch the conservative news channels, they put all the blame squarely on President Biden. And um, in the markets, people look at low rates as uh, or, or the big fiscal spend as one of the reasons Vince Signorella put out a story yesterday. The Fed's balance sheet caused inflation not low interest rates. And Barry Ritholtz uh, wrote a piece today, the 15 causes of inflation. So let's get them together. Let's get them together. Right now we have Barry Ritholtz <laughs> in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio and Vince Signorella on the phone from somewhere. Yeah, he's never coming back. No? Ever. No? Ever. I guess I wouldn't either if I had his job. Uh, Vince, <laughs> let me give you the honors. You kick it off uh, because I thought uh, your piece was fascinating. Read it last night before bed, since I go to bed at 6 p.m. Um, but it's it's pretty scary to think about how the Fed is going to unload uh, this right now $8.6 trillion balance sheet. Yeah, and that's, so the point of the story, to be honest, was basically the Fed is changing the price of money by raising interest rates. They're not really re reducing stimulus. The stimulus is the balance sheet. As you mentioned, $8.6 trillion. That, that money is still sloshing around. It's been sloshing around while fiscal policy put in how many trillions of dollars for the pandemic. 
So the, the, the Fed is trying to curb demand by raising interest rates. And all they're doing is cradling confidence. As, as Greg Jarrett mentioned earlier, the expectation part of that conference board index dropped to 66 and a half. It was down 10, almost 10 points below uh, estimates. So what the Fed really should be doing right now is reducing the balance sheet, leaving interest rates alone, let the market set the interest rates, not the Fed. It's not their job to tell the market where interest rates are. It's their job to deal with uh, supply and demand of money supply. And if they did that, they would very slowly bring down demand for the consumer. And when the supply imbalance retreated, we would have the equilibrium again, and the inflation issue would not be a question. We would have maybe modest inflation, but we, it would be going along with positive growth. I, I, I think they're making a tragic error. Barry, what say you? So everybody hates this answer, which is the world is complicated. There is no one single cause of these big, complex issues. Lots of nuance and shades of gray. Um, you know, on the one hand... That is the worst answer. Yeah, people, I agree. People, people hate that. But you know what? It's the reality. Look, we, we've had a rising Fed balance sheet and zero interest rate policy and quantitative easing from 2009 to 2019. Uh, inflation was very subdued during that period. COVID lockdown, massive fiscal stimulus, not one, not two, but three CARES Acts that added up to $5 trillion. You know, when the first CARES Act was passed in 2020, it was 10% of GDP was the biggest ever fiscal stimulus in American history. And then at the same time, you have, uh, you know, a very fragile supply chain, just-in-time delivery was, was really a, a problem. I don't want to suggest that the Fed is not relevant here. Clearly, they're a factor in this. But, you know, when you look at the fiscal stimulus, June 2021, unemployment insurance paid $1.4 trillion. You put that much cash in the hands of Americans, and we're going to go out and spend it. And if the goods aren't there, we're going to go pay up for things that we want, regardless of price. And that's a key, one of the many key drivers of inflation. I mean, you never expect politicians to be logical at all or intelligent. But um, members of the Federal Reserve should know, Vince, that there's no such thing as a free lunch, Right. Absolutely. No, I think Barry hit the nail right on the head. And that's what, what my, my feeling is when the Fed is sitting there and watching all this stimulus coming into the economy, their job isn't to raise rates. Their job is to balance the supply and demand of money. And it, had they started reducing the balance sheet as the Fed was pumping money into the system, it would not have disturbed the economy. It might not have looked good politically for them, but that's not their job to worry about politics. They're not elected officials. You know, maybe somebody should put some former traders on the Fed and not academicians. But why? Why didn't they? Why? I mean, in hindsight, it seems like an easy call. But always is. Everybody knew. Everybody on the street knew it wasn't transient inflation. We all knew they were lying to us or or telling some story to keep us calm. And so my point is, I think this inflation is more transient than it was a year and a half ago because, as Barry said, put a lot of money into the system. There is a supply imbalance. When the supply imbalance comes back to to me reversing and and money is not in savings as it it was due to the pandemic, everything is going to come back down again. There's no reason to raise rates till three and a half percent to scare the heck out of everybody. I I think he's right. And, And really, the biggest criticism I have of the Fed is not so much that they were behind the curve in inflation, 
But there was just no reason for them to be on an emergency footing throughout all of 2020. They should have recognized that. And again, if there were traders there, they might have seen this. But the market was telling them that the economy was fine, that people would eventually get vaccinated, that the world was returning to normal. Instead, they stayed at ZERP. They stayed with quantitative easing. Why? Why do you think? Because I, I think they were so terrified. So I think they were so terrified of of what was going on with COVID that they acted with a tremendous lag. The, the issue in 2019 and 2020 wasn't um, both pre-pandemic and post-pandemic, wasn't that inflation was rearing its head. It's that why are we still on an emergency footing? Why are Fed funds rate at zero when it was pretty clear the post-financial crisis um, recovery was was f- pretty fully expressed, that things were doing better. There was just no reason to stay at zero for the previous couple of years before the pandemic. And then when the market lit up from April forwards to, to not recognize oh, the economy is doing pretty well. Maybe we could go to 50 or 75 basis points. Vince, will the, uh, we were talking to Greg Hahn earlier from Winthrop, and he said that he doesn't think the Fed's going to be able to reduce this balance sheet. And they certainly didn't after the great financial crisis. What do you expect? Well, I mean, they're going to have to reduce the balance sheet because that's really the issue of inflation. Of money in the system. If they don't reduce the balance sheet, these rates are going to go a heck of a lot higher than they're prepared to deal with. But you know, as a lot of traders are already pricing in, there's a reasonable chance they have to pause and maybe even cut in early 2023, because this isn't the first time they've made this mistake. They, I think it was in 2018. I can't remember the year off the top of my head. They raised rates very quickly by 100 yep. basis points, 25 at a time. And then three months later, they're cutting by 100 basis right. points because they realized they were too aggressive. I mean, it, I think the, the path is very clear. Yep. The Fed forecasting has been awful. <laughs> oh, it is. All right. Vince Signorella, global macro strategist from Bloomberg News, calling us from the work from home remote location, which is where I think we're going to be able to find him no matter what. Undisclosed. Undisclosed, uh, as we say. Uh, and Barry Ritholtz, Ritholtz Wealth Management, uh, joining us here on our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studio. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.